Chapter Nineteen of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. As Mrs. Touchett had foretold, Isabel and Madame Merle were thrown much together during the illness of their host, so that if they had not become intimate, it would have been almost a breach of good manners. Their manners were of the best, but in addition to this, they happened to please each other. It is perhaps too much to say that they swore an eternal friendship, but tacitly, at least, they called the future to witness. Isabel did so with a perfectly good conscience, though she would have hesitated to admit she was intimate with her new friend in the high sense she privately attached to this term. She often considered, indeed, if she ever had been, or ever could be, intimate with any one. She had an ideal of friendship, as well as of several other sentiments, which had failed to seem to her in this case, it had not seemed to her in other cases, that the actual completely expressed. But she often reminded herself that there were essential reasons why one's ideal could never become concrete. It was a thing to believe in, not to see, a matter of faith, not of experience. Experience, however, might supply us with very creditable imitations of it, and the part of wisdom was to make the best of them. Certainly, on the whole, Isabel had never encountered a more agreeable and interesting figure than Madame Merle. She had never met a person having less of that fault which is the principal obstacle to friendship, the air of reproducing the more tiresome, the stale, the too familiar parts of one's own character. The gates of the girl's confidence were opened wider than they ever had been. She said things to this amiable auditress that she had not yet said to any one. Sometimes she took alarm at her candor. It was as if she had given to a comparative stranger the key to her cabinet of jewels. These spiritual gems were the only ones of any magnitude that Isabel possessed. But there was all the greater reason for their being carefully guarded. Afterwards, however, she always remembered that one should never regret a generous error, and that if Madame Merle had not the merit she attributed to her, so much the worse for Madame Merle. There was no doubt she had great merits. She was charming, sympathetic, intelligent, cultivated. More than this, for it had not been Isabel's ill fortune to go through life without meeting in her own sex several persons of whom no less could fairly be said. She was rare, superior, and pre-eminent. There are many amiable people in the world, and Madame Merle was far from being vulgarly good-natured and restlessly witty. She knew how to think, an accomplishment rare in women, and she had thought to very good purpose. Of course, too, she knew how to feel. Isabel couldn't have spent a week with her without being sure of that. This was, indeed, Madame Merle's great talent her most perfect gift. Life had told upon her, she had felt it strongly, and it was part of the satisfaction to be taken in her society that when the girl talked of what she was pleased to call serious matters, this lady understood her so easily and quickly. Emotion, it is true, had become with her rather historic. She made no secret of the fact that the fount of passion, thanks to having been rather violently tapped at one period, didn't flow quite so freely as of yore. She proposed, moreover, as well as expected, to cease feeling. She freely admitted that of old she had been a little mad, and now she pretended to be perfectly sane. "'I judge more than I used to,' she said to Isabel, "'but it seems to me one has earned the right. One can't judge till one's forty. Before that, we're too eager, too hard, too cruel, and in addition, much too ignorant. I'm sorry for you. It will be a long time before you're forty. But every gain's a loss of some kind. I often think that after forty, one can't really feel. The freshness, the quickness have certainly gone. You'll keep them longer than most people. It will be a great satisfaction to me to see you some years hence. I want to see what life makes of you. One thing's certain, it can't spoil you. It may pull you about horribly, but I defy it to break you up. Isabel received this assurance as the young soldier 
still panting from a slight skirmish in which he has come off with honour might receive a pat on the shoulder from his colonel like such a recognition of merit it seemed to come with authority how could the lightest word do less on the part of a person who was prepared to say of almost everything isabel told her oh i've been in that my dear it passes like everything else on many of her interlocutors madame merle might have produced an irritating effect it was disconcertingly difficult to surprise her but isabel though by no means incapable of desiring to be effective had not at present this impulse she was too sincere too interested in her judicious companion and then moreover madame mere never said such things in the tone of triumph or boastfulness they dropped from her like cold confessions a period of bad weather had settled upon garden court the days grew shorter and there was an end to the pretty tea-parties on the lawn but our young woman had long indoor conversations with her fellow-visitor and in spite of the rain the two ladies often sallied forth for a walk equipped with a defensive apparatus which the english climate and the english genius have between them brought to such perfection madame mere liked almost everything including the english rain there's always a little of it and never too much at once she said and it never wets you and it always smells good she declared that in england the pleasures of smell were great that in this inimitable island there was a certain mixture of fog and beer and soot which however odd it might sound was the national aroma and was most agreeable to the nostril and she used to lift the sleeve of her british overcoat and bury her nose in it inhaling the clear fine scent of the wool poor ralph touchett as soon as the autumn had begun to define itself became almost a prisoner in bad weather he was unable to step out of the house and he used sometimes to stand at one of the windows with his hands in his pockets and from a countenance half rueful half critical watch isabel and madame merle as they walk down the avenue under a pair of umbrellas the roads about garden court were so firm even in the worst weather that the two ladies always came back with a healthy glow in their cheeks looking at the soles of their neat stout boots and declaring that their walk had done them inexpressible good before luncheon always madame merle was engaged isabel admired and envied her rigid possession of her morning our heroine had always passed for a person of resources and had taken a certain pride in being one but she wandered as by the wrong side of the wall of a private garden round the enclosed talents accomplishments aptitudes of madame merle she found herself desiring to emulate them and in twenty such ways this lady presented herself as a model i should like awfully to be so isabel secretly exclaimed more than once as one after another of her friend's fine aspects caught the light and before long she knew that she had learned a lesson from a high authority it took no time indeed for her to feel herself as the phrase is under an influence what's the harm she wondered so long as it's a good one the more one's under a good influence the better the only thing is to see our steps as we take them to understand them as we go that no doubt i shall always do i needn't be afraid of becoming too pliable isn't it my fault that i'm not pliable enough it is said that imitation is the sincerest flattery and if isabel was sometimes moved to gape at her friend aspiringly and despairingly it was not so much because she desired herself to shine as because she wished to hold up the lamp for madame merle she liked her extremely but was even more dazzled than attracted she sometimes asked herself what henrietta stackpole would say to her thinking so much of this perverted product of their common soil and had a conviction that it would be severely judged henrietta would not at all subscribe to madame mere for reasons she could not have defined this truth came home to the girl on the other hand she was equally sure that should the occasion offer 
her new friend would strike off some happy view of her old. Madame Merle was too humorous, too observant, not to do justice to Henrietta, and on becoming acquainted with her would probably give the measure of a tact which Miss Stackpole couldn't hope to emulate. She appeared to have in her experience a touchstone for everything, and somewhere in the capacious pocket of her genial memory she would find the key to Henrietta's value. That's the great thing, Isabel solemnly pondered. That's the supreme good fortune, to be in a better position for appreciating people than they are for appreciating you. And she added that such, when one considered it, was simply the essence of the aristocratic situation. In this light, if in none other, one should aim at the aristocratic situation. I may not count over all the links in the chain, which led Isabel to think of Madame Merle's situation as aristocratic, a view of it never expressed in any reference made to it by that lady herself. She had known great things and great people, but she had never played a great part. She was one of the small ones of the earth. She had not been born to honours. She knew the world too well to nourish fatuous illusions on the article of her own place in it. She had encountered many of the fortunate few, and was perfectly aware of those points at which their fortune differed from hers. But if, by her informed measure, she was no figure for a high scene, she had yet to Isabel's imagination a sort of greatness. To be so cultivated and civilized, so wise and so easy, and still make so light of it, that was really to be a great lady especially when one so carried and presented oneself. It was as if somehow she had all society under contribution, and all the arts and graces that practised, or was the effect rather that of charming uses found for her, even from a distance, subtle service rendered by her to a clamorous world wherever she might be? After breakfast she wrote a succession of letters, as those arriving for her appeared innumerable. Her correspondence was a source of surprise to Isabel when they sometimes walked together to the village post-office to deposit Madame Merle's offering to the mail. She knew more people, as she told Isabel, than she knew what to do with, and something was always turning up to be written about. Of painting she was devotedly fond, and made no more of brushing in a sketch than of pulling off her gloves. At Garden Court she was perpetually taking advantage of an hour's sunshine to go out with a camp-stool and a box of water-colours. That she was a brave musician we have already perceived, and it was evidence of the fact that when she seated herself at the piano, as she always did in the evening, her listeners resigned themselves without a murmur to losing the grace of her talk. Isabel, since she had known her, felt ashamed of her own facility, which she now looked upon as basely inferior. And indeed, though she had been thought rather a prodigy at home, the loss to society when, in taking her place upon the music-stool, she turned her back to the room, was usually deemed greater than the gain. When Madame Merle was neither writing, nor painting, nor touching the piano, she was usually employed upon wonderful tasks of rich embroidery, cushions, curtains, decorations for the chimney-piece, an art in which her bold, free invention was as noted as the agility of her needle. She was never idle, for when engaged in none of the ways I have mentioned, she was either reading, she appeared to Isabel to read everything important, or walking out, or playing patience with the cards, or talking with her fellow inmates. And with all this she had always the social quality, was never rudely absent, and yet never too seated. She laid down her pastimes as easily as she took them up. She worked and talked at the same time, and appeared to impute scant worth to anything she did. She gave away her sketches and tapestries. She rose from the piano, or remained there, according to the convenience of her auditors, which she always unerringly divined. She was, in short, the most comfortable, profitable, amenable person to live with. If for Isabel she had a fault, it was that she was not natural, by which the girl meant not that she was either affected or pretentious, 
since from these vulgar vices no woman could have been more exempt but that her nature had been too much overlaid by custom and her angles too much rubbed away she had become too flexible too useful was too ripe and too final she was in a word too perfectly the social animal that man and woman are supposed to have been intended to be and she had rid herself of every remnant of that tonic wildness which we may assume to have belonged even to the most amiable persons in the ages before country-house life was the fashion isabel found it difficult to think of her in any detachment or privacy she existed only in her relations direct or indirect with her fellow-mortals one might wonder what commerce she could possibly hold with her own spirit one always ended however by feeling that a charming surface doesn't necessarily prove one superficial this was an illusion in which in one's youth one had but just escaped being nourished madame mere was not superficial not she she was deep and her nature spoke none the less in her behaviour because it spoke a conventional tongue what's language at all but a convention said isabel she has the good taste not to pretend, like some people I've met, to express herself by original signs. "'I'm afraid you've suffered much,' she once found occasion to say to her friend, in response to some allusion which had appeared to reach far. "'What makes you think that?' Madame Merle asked, with the amused smile of a person seated at a game of guesses. "'I hope I haven't too much the droop of the misunderstood.' no but you sometimes say things that i think people who have always been happy wouldn't have found out i haven't always been happy said madame merle smiling still but with a mock gravity as if she were telling a child a secret such a wonderful thing but isabel rose to the irony a great many people give me the impression of never having for a moment felt anything it's very true there are many more iron pots certainly than porcelain but you may depend on it that every one bears some mark even the hardest iron pots have a little bruise a little hole somewhere i flatter myself that i'm rather stout but if i must tell you the truth i've been shockingly chipped and cracked i do very well for service yet because i've been cleverly mended and i try to remain in the cupboard the quiet dusky cupboard where there's an odour of stale spices as much as i can but when i've to come out and into a strong light then my dear i'm a horror i know not whether it was on this occasion or on some other that when the conversation had taken the turn i have just indicated she said to isabel that she would some day a tale unfold isabel assured her she should delight to listen to one and reminded her more than once of this engagement madame merle however begged repeatedly for a respite and at last frankly told her young companion that they must wait till they knew each other better this would be sure to happen a long friendship so visibly lay before them isabel assented but at the same time inquired if she mightn't be trusted if she appeared capable of a betrayal of confidence it's not that i'm afraid of your repeating what i say her fellow visitor answered i'm afraid on the contrary of your taking it too much to yourself you judge me too harshly you're of the cruel age she preferred for the present to talk to isabel of isabel and exhibited the greatest interest in our heroine's history sentiments opinions prospects she made her chatter and listened to her chatter with infinite good nature this flattered and quickened the girl who was struck with all the distinguished people her friend had known and with her having lived as mrs touchett said in the best company in europe isabel thought the better of herself for enjoying the favour of a person who had so large a field of comparison and it was perhaps partly to gratify the sense of profiting by comparison that she often appealed to these stores of reminiscence madame merle had been a dweller in many lands and had social ties in a dozen different countries i don't pretend to be educated she would say but i think i know my europe and she spoke one day of going to sweden to stay with an old friend 
and another of proceeding to Malta to follow up a new acquaintance. With England, where she had often dwelt, she was thoroughly familiar, and for Isabel's benefit threw a great deal of light upon the customs of the country and the character of the people who, after all, as she was fond of saying, were the most convenient in the world to live with. You mustn't think it strange her remaining here at such a time as this, when Mr. Touchett's passing away, that gentleman's wife remarked to her niece. She is incapable of a mistake. She's the most tactful woman I know. It's a favour to me that she stays. She's putting off a lot of visits at great houses, said Mrs. Touchett, who never forgot that when she herself was in England, her social value sank two or three degrees in the scale. She has her pick of places. She's not in want of a shelter. But I've asked her to put in this time, because I wish you to know her. I think it will be a good thing for you. Serena Mill hasn't a fault. If I didn't already like her very much, that description might alarm me, Isabel returned. She's never the least bit off. I've brought you out here, and I wish to do the best for you. Your sister Lily told me she hoped I would give you plenty of opportunities. I give you one in putting you in relation with Madame Merle. She's one of the most brilliant women in Europe. I like her better than I like your description of her, Isabel persisted in saying. Do you flatter yourself that you'll ever feel her open to criticism? I hope you'll let me know when you do. That will be cruel to you, said Isabel. You needn't mind me. You won't discover a fault in her. Perhaps not, but I dare say I shan't miss it. She knows absolutely everything on earth there is to know, said Mrs. Touchett. Isabel, after this, observed to their companion that she hoped she knew Mrs. Touchett considered she hadn't a speck on her perfection. On which, I'm obliged to you, Madame Merle replied, but I'm afraid your aunt imagines, or at least alludes to, no aberrations that the clock face doesn't register. So that you mean you've had a wild side that's unknown to her? Ah, no, I fear my darkest sides are my tamest. I mean that having no faults for your aunt means that one's never late for dinner, that is, for her dinner. I was not late, by the way, the other day when you came back from London. The clock was just at eight when I came into the drawing-room. It was the rest of you that were there before the time. It means that one answers a letter the day one gets it, and that when one comes to stay with her, one doesn't bring too much luggage, and is careful not to be taken ill. For Mrs. Touchett, those things constitute virtue. It's a blessing to be able to reduce it to its elements. Madame Merle's own conversation, it will be perceived, was enriched with bold, free touches of criticism, which, even when they had a restrictive effect, never struck Isabel as ill-natured. It couldn't occur to the girl, for instance, that Mrs. Touchett's accomplished guest was abusing her, and this for very good reasons. In the first place, Isabel rose eagerly to the sense of her shades. In the second, Madame Merle implied that there was a great deal more to say, and it was clear in the third that for a person to speak to one without ceremony of one's near relations was an agreeable sign of that person's intimacy with oneself. These signs of deep communion multiplied as the days elapsed, and there was none of which Isabel was more sensible than of her companion's preference for making Miss Archer herself a topic. Though she referred frequently to the incidents of her own career, she never lingered upon them. She was as little of a gross egotist as she was of a flat gossip. "'I'm old and stale and faded,' she said more than once. "'I'm of no more interest than last week's newspaper. You're young and fresh and of today. You've the great thing. You've actuality. I once had it. We all have it for an hour.' You, however, will have it for longer. Let us talk about you, then. You can say nothing I shall not care to hear. It's a sign that I'm growing old, that I like to talk with younger people. I think it's a very pretty compensation. If we can't have youth within us, we can have it outside, and I really think we see it and feel it better that way. Of course we must be in sympathy with it. That I shall always be. 
i don't know that i shall ever be ill-natured with old people i hope not there are certainly some old people i adore but i shall never be anything but abject with the young they touch me and appeal to me too much i give you carte blanche then you can even be impertinent if you like i shall let it pass and horribly spoil you i speak as if i were a hundred years old you say well i am if you please i was born before the french revolution ah my dear je viens de loin i belong to the old old world but it's not of that that i want to talk i want to talk about the new you must tell me more about america you never tell me enough here i've been since i was brought here as a helpless child and it's ridiculous or rather it's scandalous how little i know about that splendid dreadful funny country surely the greatest and drollest of them all there are a great many of us like that in these parts and i must say i think we're a wretched set of people you should live in your own land whatever it may be you have your natural place there if we're not good americans we're certainly poor europeans we have no natural place here we're mere parasites crawling over the surface we haven't our feet in the soil at least one can know it and not have illusions a woman perhaps can get on a woman it seems to me has no natural place anywhere wherever she finds herself she has to remain on the surface and more or less to crawl you protest my dear you're horrified you declare you'll never crawl it's very true that i don't see you crawling you stand more upright than a good many poor creatures very good on the whole i don't think you'll crawl but the men the americans je vous demande un peu what do they make of it over here i don't envy them trying to arrange themselves look at poor ralph touchett what sort of a figure do you call that fortunately he has a consumption i say fortunately because it gives him something to do his consumptions his carriere it's a kind of position you can say oh mr touchett he takes care of his lungs he knows a great deal about climates but without that who would he be what would he represent mr ralph touchett an american who lives in europe that signifies absolutely nothing it's impossible anything should signify less he's very cultivated they say he has a very pretty collection of old snuff-boxes the collection is all that's wanted to make it pitiful i'm tired of the sound of the word i think it's grotesque with the poor old father it's different he has his identity and it's rather a massive one he represents a great financial house and that in our day is as good as anything else for an american at any rate that will do very well but i persist in thinking your cousin very lucky to have a chronic malady so long as he doesn't die of it it's much better than the snuff-boxes if he weren't ill you say he'd do something he'd take his father's place in the house my poor child i doubt it i don't think he's at all fond of the house however you know him better than i though i used to know him rather well and he may have the benefit of the doubt the worst case i think is a friend of mine a countryman of ours who lives in italy where he was also brought before he knew better and who is one of the most delightful men i know some day you must know him i'll bring you together and then you'll see what i mean he's gilbert osmond he lives in italy that's all one can say about him or make of him he's exceedingly clever a man made to be distinguished but as i tell you you exhaust the description when you say he's mr osmond who lives tout bêtement in italy no career no name no position no fortune no past no future no anything oh yes he paints if you please paints in watercolours like me only better than i his painting's pretty bad on the whole i'm rather glad of that fortunately he's very indolent so indolent that it amounts to a sort of position he can say oh i do nothing i'm too deadly lazy you can do nothing to-day unless you get up at five o'clock in the morning in that way he becomes a sort of exception you feel he might do something if he'd only rise early 
He never speaks of his painting, to people at large. He's too clever for that. But he has a little girl, a dear little girl. He does speak of her. He's devoted to her, and if it were a career to be an excellent father, he'd be very distinguished. But I'm afraid that's no better than the snuff-boxes, perhaps not even so good. Tell me what they do in America, pursued Madame Merle, who, it must be observed parenthetically, did not deliver herself all at once of these reflections, which are presented in a cluster for the convenience of the reader. She talked of Florence, where Mr. Osmond lived, and where Mrs. Touchett occupied a medieval palace. She talked of Rome, where she herself had a little pied-à-terre with some rather good old damask. She talked of places, of people, and even, as the phrase is, of subjects, and from time to time she talked of their kind old host, and of the prospect of his recovery. From the first she had thought this prospect small, and Isabel had been struck with the positive, discriminating, competent way in which she took the measure of his remainder of life. One evening she announced definitely that he wouldn't live. "'Sir Matthew Hope told me so as plainly as was proper,' she said, standing there near the fire before dinner. He makes himself very agreeable, the great doctor. I don't mean his saying that has anything to do with it, but he says such things with great tact. I had told him I felt ill at my ease, staying here at such a time. It seemed to me so indiscreet. It wasn't as if I could nurse. You must remain, you must remain, he answered. Your office will come later. Wasn't that a very delicate way of saying both that poor Mr. Touchett would go, and that I might be of some use as a consoler. In fact, however, I shall not be of the slightest use. Your aunt will console herself. She, and she alone, knows just how much consolation she'll require. It would be a very delicate matter for another person to undertake to administer the dose. With your cousin it will be different. He'll miss his father immensely but I should never presume to condole with Mr. Ralph. We're not on those terms. Madame Merle had alluded more than once to some undefined incongruity in her relations with Ralph Touchett, so Isabel took this occasion of asking her if they were not good friends. Perfectly, but he doesn't like me. What have you done to him? Nothing whatever, but one has no need of a reason for that. For not liking you, I think one has need of a very good reason. You're very kind. Be sure you have one ready for the day you begin. Begin to dislike you? I shall never begin. I hope not, because if you do, you'll never end. That's the way with your cousin. He doesn't get over it. It's an antipathy of nature, if I can call it that when it's all on his side. I've nothing whatever against him, and don't bear him the least little grudge for not doing me justice. Justice is all I want. However, one feels that he's a gentleman, and would never say anything underhand about one. Carte sur table, Madame Merle subjoined in a moment. I'm not afraid of him. I hope not indeed, said Isabel, who added something about his being the kindest creature living. She remembered, however, that on her first asking him about Madame Merle, he had answered her in a manner which this lady might have thought injurious without being explicit. There was something between them, Isabel said to herself, but she said nothing more than this. If it were something of importance, it should inspire respect. If it were not, it was not worth her curiosity. With all her love of knowledge, she had a natural shrinking from raising curtains and looking into unlighted corners. The love of knowledge coexisted in her mind with the finest capacity for ignorance. But Madame Merle sometimes said things that startled her, made her raise her clear eyebrows at the time and think of the words afterwards. I give a great deal to be your age again, she broke out once with a bitterness which, though diluted in her customary amplitude of ease, was imperfectly disguised by it. If I could only begin again, if I could have my life before me. Your life's before you yet, Isabel answered gently, for she was vaguely awestruck. 
no the best part's gone and gone for nothing surely not for nothing said isabel why not what have i got neither husband nor child nor fortune nor position nor the traces of a beauty that i never had you have many friends dear lady i'm not so sure cried madame merle ah you're wrong you have memories graces talents but madame merle interrupted her what have my talents brought me nothing but the need of using them still to get through the hours the years to cheat myself with some pretense of movement of unconsciousness as for my graces and memories the less said about them the better you'll be my friend till you find a better use for your friendship it will be for you to see that i don't then said isabel yes i would make an effort to keep you and her companion looked at her gravely when i say that i should like to be your age i mean with your qualities frank generous sincere like you in that case i should have made something better of my life what should you have liked to do that you've not done madame merle took a sheet of music she was seated at the piano and had abruptly wheeled about on the stool when she first spoke and mechanically turned the leaves i'm very ambitious she at last replied and your ambitions have not been satisfied they must have been great they were great i should make myself ridiculous by talking of them isabel wondered what they could have been whether madame merle had aspired to wear a crown i don't know what your idea of success may be but you seem to me to have been successful to me indeed you are a vivid image of success madame merle tossed away the music with a smile what's your idea of success you evidently think it must be a very tame one it's to see some dream of one's youth come true ah madame merle exclaimed that i've never seen but my dreams were so great so preposterous heaven forgive me i'm dreaming now and she turned back to the piano and began grandly to play on the morrow she said to isabel that her definition of success had been very pretty yet frightfully sad measured in that way who had ever succeeded the dreams of one's youth why they were enchanting they were divine who had ever seen such things come to pass i myself a few of them isabel ventured to answer already they must have been dreams of yesterday i began to dream very young isabel smiled ah if you mean the aspirations of your childhood that of having a pink sash and a doll that could close her eyes no i don't mean that or a young man with a fine moustache going down on his knees to you no nor that either isabel declared with still more emphasis madame merle appeared to note this eagerness i suspect that's what you do mean we've all had the young man with the moustache he's the inevitable young man he doesn't count isabel was silent a little but then spoke with extreme and characteristic inconsequence why shouldn't he count there are young men and young men and yours was a paragon is that what you mean asked her friend with a laugh if you've had the identical young man you dreamed of then that was success and i congratulate you with all my heart only in that case why didn't you fly with him to his castle in the apennines he has no castle in the apennines what has he an ugly brick house in fortieth street don't tell me that i refuse to recognize that as an ideal i don't care anything about his house said isabel that's very crude of you when you've lived as long as i you'll see that every human being has his shell and that you must take the shell into account by the shell i mean the whole envelope of circumstances there's no such thing as an isolated man or woman we're each of us made up of some cluster of appurtenances what shall we call our self where does it begin where does it end it overflows into everything that belongs to us and then it flows back again i know a large part of myself is in the clothes i choose to wear i've a great respect for things one's self for other people 
is one's expression of oneself, and one's house, one's furniture, one's garments, the books one reads, the company one keeps, these things are all expressive. This was very metaphysical, not more so, however, than several observations Madame Merle had already made. Isabel was fond of metaphysics, but was unable to accompany her friend into this bold analysis of the human personality. I don't agree with you. I think just the other way. I don't know whether I succeed in expressing myself, but I know that nothing else expresses me. Nothing that belongs to me is any measure of me. Everything's, on the contrary, a limit, a barrier, and a perfectly arbitrary one. Certainly the clothes, which, as you say, I choose to wear, don't express me, and heaven forbid they should. You dress very well, Madame Mère lightly interposed. Possibly, but I don't care to be judged by that. My clothes may express the dressmaker, but they don't express me. To begin with, it's not my own choice that I wear them. They're imposed upon me by society. Should you prefer to go without them? Madame Merle inquired, in a tone which virtually terminated the discussion. I am bound to confess, though it may cast some discredit on the sketch I have given of the youthful loyalty practised by our heroine toward this accomplished woman, that Isabel had said nothing whatever to her about Lord Warburton, and had been equally reticent on the subject of Caspar Goodwood. She had not, however, concealed the fact that she had had opportunities of marrying, and had even let her friend know of how advantageous a kind they had been. Lord Warburton had left Lockley, and was gone to Scotland, taking his sisters with him, and though he had written to Ralph more than once to ask about Mr. Touchett's health, the girl was not liable to be the embarrassment of such enquiries as had he still been in the neighbourhood he would probably have felt bound to make in person. He had excellent ways, but she felt sure that if he had come to Garden Court he would have seen Madame Merle, and that if he had seen her he would have liked her, and betrayed to her that he was in love with her young friend. It so happened that during this lady's previous visits to Garden Court, each of them much shorter than the present, he had either not been at Lockley, or had not called at Mr. Touchett's. Therefore, though she knew him by name as the great man of that county, she had no cause to suspect him as a suitor of Mrs. Touchett's freshly imported niece. "'You've plenty of time,' she had said to Isabel, in return for the mutilated confidences which our young woman made her, and which didn't pretend to be perfect, though we have seen that at moments the girl had compunctions at having said so much. I'm glad you've done nothing yet, that you have it still to do. It's a very good thing for a girl to have refused a few good offers, so long, of course, as they're not the best she's likely to have. Pardon me if my tone seems horribly corrupt. One must take the worldly view sometimes. Only don't keep on refusing for the sake of refusing. It's a pleasant exercise of power, but accepting's, after all, an exercise of power as well. There's always the danger of refusing once too often. It was not the one I fell into. I didn't refuse often enough. You're an exquisite creature, and I should like to see you married to a prime minister. But speaking strictly, you know, you're not what is technically called a parti. You're extremely good-looking and extremely clever. In yourself, you're quite exceptional. You appear to have the vaguest ideas about your earthly possessions. But from what I can make out, you're not embarrassed with an income. I wish you had a little money. I wish I had, said Isabel, simply, apparently, forgetting for the moment that her poverty had been a venial fault for two gallant gentlemen. In spite of Sir Matthew Hope's benevolent recommendation, Madame Mel did not remain to the end, as the issue of poor Mr. Touchett's malady had now come frankly to be designated. She was under pledges to other people which had at last to be redeemed, and she left Garden Court with the understanding that she should in any event see Mrs. Touchett there again, or else in town, before quitting England. Her parting with Isabel was even more like the beginning of a friendship than their meeting had been. 
I'm going to six places in succession, but I shall see no one I like so well as you. They'll all be old friends, however. One doesn't make new friends at my age. I've made a great exception for you. You must remember that, and must think as well of me as possible. You must reward me by believing in me. By way of answer, Isabel kissed her, and though some women kiss with facility, there are kisses and kisses, and this embrace was satisfactory to Madame Merle. Our young lady, after this, was much alone. She saw her aunt and cousin only at meals, and discovered that of the hours during which Mrs. Touchett was invisible, only a minor portion was now devoted to nursing her husband. She spent the rest in her own apartments, to which access was not allowed even to her niece, apparently occupied there with mysterious and inscrutable exercises. At table she was grave and silent, but her solemnity was not an attitude. Isabel could see it was a conviction. She wondered if her aunt repented of having taken her own way so much, but there was no visible evidence of this, no tears, no sighs, no exaggeration of a zeal always to its own sense adequate. Mrs. Touchett seemed simply to feel the need of thinking things over and summing them up. She had a little moral account book, with columns unerringly ruled and a sharp steel clasp, which she kept with exemplary neatness. Uttered reflection had with her ever, at any rate, a practical ring. "'If I had foreseen this, I'd not have proposed your coming abroad now,' she said to Isabel, after Madame Mel had left the house. "'I'd have waited and sent for you next year.' "'So that perhaps I should never have known my uncle? It's a great happiness to me to have come now.' "'That's very well, but it was not that you might know your uncle that I brought you to Europe.' a perfectly voracious speech, but, as Isabel thought, not as perfectly timed. She had leisure to think of this and other matters. She took a solitary walk every day, and spent vague hours in turning over books in the library. Among the subjects that engaged her attention were the adventures of her friend, Miss Stackpole, with whom she was in regular correspondence. Isabel liked her friend's private epistolary style better than her public. That is, she felt her public letters would have been excellent if they had not been printed. Henrietta's career, however, was not so successful as might have been wished even in the interest of her private felicity. That view of the inner life of Great Britain, which she was so eager to take, appeared to dance before her like an ignis fatuus. The invitation from Lady Pencil, for mysterious reasons, had never arrived, and poor Mr. Bantling himself, with all his friendly ingenuity, had been unable to explain so grave a dereliction on the part of a missive that had obviously been sent. He had evidently taken Henrietta's affairs much to heart, and believed that he owed her a set-off to this illusory visit to Bedfordshire. He says he should think I would go to the Continent, Henrietta wrote, and as he thinks of going there himself, I suppose his advice is sincere. He wants to know why I don't take a view of French life, and it's a fact that I want very much to see the new republic. Mr. Bantling doesn't care much about the republic, but he thinks of going over to Paris anyway. I must say he's quite as attentive as I could wish, and at least I shall have seen one polite Englishman." I keep telling Mr. Bantling that he ought to have been an American, and you should see how that pleases him. Whenever I say so, he always breaks out with the same exclamation. Ah, but really, come now. A few days later she wrote that she had decided to go to Paris at the end of the week, and that Mr. Bantling had promised to see her off, perhaps even would go as far as Dover with her. She would wait in Paris till Isabel should arrive, Henrietta added speaking quite as if Isabel were to start on her continental journey alone, and making no allusion to Mrs. Touchett. Bearing in mind his interest in their late companion, our heroine communicated several passages from this correspondence to Ralph, who followed with an emotion akin to suspense the career of the representative of the interviewer. "'It seems to me she's doing very well,' he said, going over to Paris with an ex-lancer, 
If she wants something to write about, she has only to describe that episode. It's not conventional, certainly, Isabel answered. But if you mean that, as far as Henrietta is concerned, it's not perfectly innocent, you're very much mistaken. You'll never understand Henrietta. Pardon me, I understand her perfectly. I didn't at all at first, but now I've the point of view. I'm afraid, however, that Bantling hasn't. He may have some surprises. Oh, I understand Henrietta as well as if I had made her. Isabel was by no means sure of this, but she abstained from expressing further doubt, for she was disposed in these days to extend a great charity to her cousin. One afternoon, less than a week after Madame Merle's departure, she was seated in the library with a volume to which her attention was not fastened. She had placed herself in a deep window bench, from which she looked out into the dull, damp park, and as the library stood at right angles to the entrance front of the house, she could see the doctor's broom, which had been waiting for the last two hours before the door. She was struck with his remaining so long, but at last she saw him appear in the portico, stand a moment slowly, drawing on his gloves, and looking at the knees of his horse, and then get into the vehicle and roll away. Isabel kept her place for half an hour. There was a great stillness in the house. It was so great that when she at last heard a soft, slow step on the deep carpet of the room, she was almost startled by the sound. She turned quickly away from the window, and saw Ralph Touchett standing there with his hands still in his pockets, but with a face absolutely void of its usual latent smile. She got up, and her movement and glance were a question. "'It's all over,' said Ralph. "'Do you mean that my uncle?' and Isabel stopped. "'My dear father died an hour ago.' "'Ah, my poor Ralph!' she gently wailed, putting out her two hands to him. End of chapter 19